Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Bubbley, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information on the Biota Podcast, check out biota.org slash podcast. Well, we have two callers on the line, so I'll bring in uh, Bruce Damer first because I know his number. Hello, Tom. How are you this week? Very good, very good. Lots to talk about this evening and uh, lots, gosh, we have uh, a number of callers now. The, the switchboard has lit up. Hello, first caller. Is that Travis? It is Travis Marvel. Oh, Travis, wonderful to talk to you again. So we have two additional callers. Zan? Hi, Zan. How are you? Good to talk to you. Nice to be on the line. And we have a fourth caller. Hello, this is uh, Ed from uh, Indiana. Oh, hi, Ed. How are you? I'm doing good. Are you a, a long-time listener? I think you're on the Facebook group, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've listened about a few months now. Wonderful. Good to have you on the line this evening. So, uh, as you're probably all familiar, we have some news and notes, and then we'll get into this evening's topic. We have two episodes coming up. Uh, the next one next Friday, August 29th, 8 p.m. Pacific, Artificial Life Isn't Just Genetic Algorithms. Now, Bruce in part inspired this topic, but also through my chapter surveying of nature-inspired informatics, I found the, uh, the bleeding edge with regards to genetic algorithms and genetic programming is about, well, as you'd expect, probably 15 to 20 years past Dawkins and Carl Sims. And I think there's a lot of additional exciting stuff in genetic algorithms and genetic programming, but in addition to that, some discussion with regards to things that aren't genetic algorithms but are still artificial life. And the following Friday, September 5th, 8 p.m. Pacific, Spore Till You Snore. The launch of Spore will be going on on that day, and it's a working title, Spore Till You Snore. We will be covering everything to do with Spore in terms of an artificial life perspective, also a lot of background history, a lot of interlinking. I hope to have Steve Grand on. And, um, yeah, it's going to be very interesting. Obviously, there will be a lot of Spore coverage leading up until September 5th. I've certainly already started that by the grace on blog. However, on September 5th, we will have an extended discussion with regards to Spore, how it fits into the artificial life community, some of the background history with regards to artificial life components that may be in Spore, and just a general Spore-related discussion. So, Travis, it's been a while since you were, uh, since you were last on the call. I realise that you did a um, demonstration last night with regards to augmented reality, could you uh, give some discussion to what you've been doing since you last were on Biota Live? Well, certainly. Um, it's funny because the last time I think I was on Biota Live, I was also giving a demonstration at Mindshare. I had uh, last night returned to Mindshare to give a demonstration on uh, augmented reality, which is a, a technology that Robert, I'm working on with Robert Rice uh, from NeoGen Studios, who you've had on your podcast before. So that was a, it's a multidisciplinary event where a bunch of speakers come and kind of talk about the interesting things that they're working on. And um, you pay $25 or $30 at the door um, to get in, and there's an open bar. And there was about 250 people there. And as a result of that, we've got some very interesting people talking to us about some of the projects that we're working on. Um, so good, good result from that. I'm really happy to... Uh, you know, continue to work that angle because Doug does do those monthly. He puts them on uh, and gives a different talk every time. And uh, he just moved to a new venue. So we're really happy with the way things are going with that. So I don't want to put you on the spot, but did you take a, a pile of uh, Biota podcast CDs with you to your talk last night? You know, I did. <laughs> I handed them. I, I took about um, 
20, and I gave out about 12. There was um, a, just a bunch in my backpack, and every time I encountered one of those interesting people, I, you know, I said, well, you really got to check this out because there's some fascinating content on here. Uh, you know, uh, Tom Barbelay gives a, a podcast and on artificial life, and we, you know, I've talked on these before, and uh, so I definitely really appreciate those because I have been giving them out. Um, there's some absolutely fascinating people at Mindshare to give them to, so it was a great time. And I think this can probably lead into the Graysum-related news because certainly both LA and New York, and we'll, we'll get Ed to talk a little bit about Indiana in a moment, but I mean the movement with, in LA currently with regards to Graysum, can you give some discussion to what's been going on? Well, I've seen a bunch of uh, talk on the mailing list. There's been a lot of, uh, up, of upsurging of the community for more events, and um, I've actually started working... Um, with a nonprofit organization called the National Organization for Business Community Development. And one of the things that they do is um, foster uh, fledgling communities, like, uh, for instance, a biota community, and show them how to um, do things like get it up and going and, and help that. So um, we're going to, you know, get, we're going to start move, making more of a push here because I know that there's people um, talking on the mailing list about it. Um, I need to get more familiar with um, the, the details of, you know, any efforts that uh, are currently happening. But I know that, you know, we're going to make something happen here real soon. And in your, in your travels coming up, Bruce, are you going to be going to L.A. over that time? I'm going to L.A., but unfortunately not at that time. But I definitely want to catch an, an L.A. gray thumb uh, soon. Yes, I, th I think it could probably work out where an informal get-together would coincide with your trip to L.A. if that was possible, because certainly the feedback that's come through the mailing lists recently, and I'd like to send a special shout-out to Brian Allen in particular. His team at UCLA is doing amazing work that vends into artificial life in a wide variety of other areas, including psychology and uh, basically augmented reality. I mean, exactly what you're talking about currently, Travis. So there's a lot of interesting folk in the L.A. area. And Bruce, as you're on the call as well, characterize the discussion that's been going on in New York currently with regards to Graytham, New York. Well, I think um, I'm definitely uh, going to be there in the middle of October, and there's just a vibrant community of people from NYU and independent labs and the Dorkbot community to draw from. And so the Manhattan, New York area, the Institute for Advanced Studies, uh, a, lot, a lot of schools, it's, it's probably pretty ripe for that. I know Adam said he would, would come down from Boston for an inaugural meeting. And Ed, as this is your first time on the podcast, would you like to, to give some introduction and also pitch the potential for growth of Indiana? Sure, sure. Uh, right now I'm just, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a lone engineer. Uh, I'm kind of working on uh, bioinformatics uh, at the local... Uh, Lilly uh, Pharmaceuticals. So uh, I met a few other engineers there, and we're working on pharmacogenetics and uh, a few other uh, areas that I work in. And uh, right now, I'm the, just finding people has uh, been very interesting. I haven't found really anybody that's uh, responded to many emails other than this Biota uh, podcast. So Indiana's kind of a weird place. It, uh, I joined the PHP users group, and we had about four people there. And uh, it's been kind of hard to find people who are interested in doing extra stuff, kind of playing with uh, um, the artificial life area. So it's, it's been interesting. 
Yeah, it's a difficult time currently because obviously it's it's summer for Bloomington, but Larry Yeager is a founding father, someone who's carried artificial life for a number of years through Polyworlds at Apple and now in teaching uh, at Indiana. So I think when Larry gets back and is teaching in probably the next couple of weeks, you'll certainly see an uptake in correspondence and obviously Larry's team and the, the students that surround Larry uh, obviously have an interest in artificial life and, and most definitely will have an interest in a local grey thumb. So that may bring in uh, a swell of interest and it's probably just because it's the, the end of an academic summer that we haven't seen much correspondence in that regard. Can you talk at all about some of the research and the simulations you're doing in terms of flu HIV spread? Can you talk about that at all? So um, that's mostly my own like little project that I'm working on. Uh, I know another guy from IUPUI, a professor there, and we've kind of just shot around ideas. You know, how does how does the flu work, and how does uh, the lower physics of a lot of biology work, and how do we put that into a piece of software that can generate and then mutate it. So uh, right now we don't have anything built yet, but we have ideas. <laughs> I could say we're at that point. We have a lot of ideas, but we're just trying to say, well, how do we put that into real code and have it run? I don't know if Travis worked with Justin Lyon specifically on this, but I know Justin Lyon was involved with epidemic simulation. And Travis, do you know anything more about Justin's work with regards to epidemic simulation? Um, other than that Justin has spawned a lot of his simulation framework from his um, existing work, and I've seen a lot of that work um, come out of it. His, his models for spreads of disease and traffic and things like that are, are really fantastic. Um, I know that he has you know, worked a lot in this area, but I don't have any more specifics on it. There's certainly a, a heavy vein with regards to epidemic simulation and to artificial life. I'm thinking as well of the, uh, the zombie simulation, which is a, now a classic artificial life simulation in terms of the spread of, of zombiness uh, amongst agents. A fantastic simulation. So other Greytham-related news. This coming Tuesday, August 26th, at SRI International in Menlo Park will be, I believe, either the fourth or the fifth meeting of Greytham Silicon Valley San Francisco. BiotaLive's own Scott Davis will be on talking about his Mars simulation project, and this is something which I asked Scott specifically to, uh, to discuss at a Greytham because I think... There's a lot of potential with regards to John Cumbers and Scott and potentially other folk at uh, Graytham San Francisco Silicon Valley getting together and simulating artificial life on Mars. Bruce, I know you've had some correspondence with, with Scott and others about this. I know you won't be attending this Tuesday, but what do you see the potential coming out of this meeting being? Well, interestingly, you know, if NASA is trying to do long-term missions like a Mars mission, we actually may have to understand how to engineer organisms to scrub the air and provide foodstuffs and whatnot for Mars colonies, and we may have to simulate organisms or whole ecosystems uh, in cyberspace before we build those kind of wet labs. And that's an interest that uh, both certainly John Cumbers and others have at Ames, and so does Pete Warden. And I know that uh, Van Gill will also talk about that when we get to that. 
Certainly. So just to finish up that news, the official meeting starts at 7pm. However, there is a meeting or an informal get-together and I guess a meal at Barone Cafe at 6pm, uh, which is five minutes' walk from SRI. You need to get in contact with Osha Yadka at SRI. You can just send me an email, tom at noble8.com, if you'd like to attend, and I'll forward it on very promptly to Osha so he can get a sense of the numbers. I had such an overwhelming response with regards to reading out the Grayson chapters that are starting up currently and already active. I'm going to do it again very rapidly. Obviously, there is Greytham, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, and even if you travel through these areas, please get in contact with me and I'll forward you on to the coordinators, even if there are informal get-togethers that you know could happen as you are traveling through. These kind of communities are always interested and excited to meet new people. So, Greytham, San Francisco, Silicon Valley. Greytham, Boston, obviously, as a, a monthly meeting, but also informal get-togethers, as Bruce has talked about in previous previous Biota Lives. Greytham London, there is some discussion with regards to forming a core group in Greytham London. So if you're in the London area and you may have heard some of the audio with regards to Greytham London but you haven't yet attended, if this is something that interests you, please contact me and I'll forward you on to the Greytham London folk. Greytham Benelux, also known as the Netherlands, Belgium and Luxembourg. I haven't heard any more from Gerald de Jong with regards to when the next meeting will be, but it's sometime next month. So get in contact with Gerald directly at darwinathome.org, all one word. Grayson Brighton, interesting Grayson movement. Uh, there was some discussion with regards to London and Brighton joining up, but obviously with Iman Harvey in the area and his team, the largest artificial life-related student group in the world, according to Jamie Matthews. So an interesting group that could be forming in Brighton. We've discussed Graytham LA. We have Travis on the line. We've discussed Graytham Indiana and we have Ed on the line. We've discussed Graytham New York. Graytham North Carolina. I know Travis mentioned Robert Rice. He is going to be one of the founding members with regards to North Carolina, the Greensboro Rayleigh area of North Carolina. Graytham Melbourne, as in Melbourne, Australia. There are a number of folk in the Melbourne area that are listeners to Biota Live and Artificial Life interested, so please get in contact with me and I'll forward you on to the various folk in Melbourne. And last but not least, they're listening to us live in Second Life currently. I'd like to send a special shout-out to Dick Gordon and folks who are listening. Have you actually been to the Second Life location, Bruce, where they hold the uh, the grey thumbs and listen into Biota Live? I have not, I must admit. And for an Avatar guy, that's pretty shameful. Uh, it, it's one of the uh, few Greythams you haven't actually attended. That's right. <laughs> so we'll need to rectify that in the near future. Before I continue, I just wanted to say a shout-out to Dr. Dave of Shrink Wrap Radio. I forgot to mention last week's show, Dr. Dave is the origin of Biota Live. Obviously, his Shrink Wrap Radio Live was instrumental in starting Biota Live. I'm going to play a new promo from Dr. Dave at the end of this podcast, which is inspired by Bob Dylan, and my parents met at a Bob Dylan concert, so I have a particular connection with that. Dr. Dave is also referenced in the Dick Gordon Book Project, which is an interesting overlap because that's also the first time Shrink Wrap Radio has ever been referenced. In a, in a book of any form. So I received a lot of feedback from the last show and I'd like to send a particular thanks and a shout out to all the folk that contacted me and asked to remain anonymous. It's always difficult doing a solo show, getting a sense of whether I'm actually gelling with the community and certainly the feedback from the community was that I was gelling with them. 
some interesting correspondence from John Klein, who allowed me to name him. He is working with a new startup. There may actually be some interesting events with regards to what Travis is talking about as well. But he, too, has a very positive outlook with regards to the future of artificial life, although we're not all millionaires driving Porsches. Currently, he seems to think that we will be able to change things from the inside by joining startups, by motivating artificial life-related development through all we are doing, and that has certainly gelled with regards to the biota lives to date. Dan, this is the first time you've appeared on a Biota Live. Would you like to give some introduction to who you are and how you got interested in artificial life? Well, I, uh, so I'm Zan Gill, and I first really became interested in artificial life when I was working at NASA Ames Research Center, and a biologist whom I was interviewing about his um, uh, creative process and the way that, that they, were, they were simulating protein folding, basically, the biophysics group. And um, he said, you know, I think you would really be interested in this artificial life work. And he handed me probably half a shelf full of his books and said, you know, keep it as long as you need them. And I think I kept them maybe two years. But um, that was, uh, gee, that was about ten years ago. And so that was the beginning. Um, took me a while to actually get to an A-Life conference, but um, I kept reading the A-Life proceedings and realized that there was a very strong parallel between what the A-Life community was working on and the kinds of problems that A-Life was uniquely positioned to address and the questions that I was working on having to do with um, transposing an evolutionary model to look at human cognition, human intelligence. You've given an introduction that uh, certainly a, a contemporary artificial life practitioner could understand perfectly. You have currently, is it one book or two books that are about to be published? Well, it was one book, but it became such a mammoth project, and because the nature of writing the book was that it was itself an emergent discovery process. In other words, it wasn't as if I said, I know it all, now I'm going to sit down and make my outline and write this in fact, it took me a much, much longer time than that to write it because the process of writing was an emergent discovery process. And so I was writing this one book, and it just became bigger and bigger. And actually, um, originally, I was the what is now the second book, what Daedalus told Darwin, was actually the original book, and I think is the book that is more aligned with with artificial life. But when I got to NASA uh, ten years ago. I realized that the origin of life was an ideal case study for a lot of the things that I was talking about. And so I began to rewrite the book using the origin of life as my case study. And at some point I realized it was just too big and too ambitious, and I really needed to separate it into two books, one book, which origin of life, and the other one, the, the book that I had been writing prior to that, which really focuses on evolution. So exploring the idea of the Minotaur and the maze for a moment, can you talk a little bit about kind of Greek classical philosophy and how that merges with artificial life? Well, um, maybe I would choose to start with Daedalus, since Daedalus appears in my title, though, though I really see three mythical characters, and this is going to be another book that I will write someday, but uh, three mythical characters, namely Oedipus, Daedalus, and Theseus, as forming a triadic archetype 
that really has not surfaced yet. And I think that because of the great talent of Sophocles as a playwright and his focus on Oedipus and his you know, three plays about Oedipus, and then, of course, the great talent of Freud as a psychologist and his, I mean, Freud was really an artist as well as a psychologist, so he also then gave this great stature to Oedipus. And so in some sense, Oedipus became the, um, the archetype of our culture, I would say, the, the primary archetype of our culture. And the other two, Daedalus and Theseus, were really neglected. So just the brief summary, Oedipus is the one who murdered his father and married his mother. <laughs> That's probably the, the simplest summary of Oedipus. And, but the, the significant thing about Oedipus was that he was a very upright, moral man who committed these acts because he did not know who he was. In other words, he didn't know who his father was. He didn't know who his mother was. And so you see this, that's the tragedy of, of Oedipus, this, this lack of self-knowledge. And Oedipus is a, in the play, Sophocles beautifully frames the play where, where Oedipus is discovering who he is. And, of course, that was what so intrigued Freud. But Oedipus is the archetype for analysis, the analytical mind, digging down, digging down, and really the archetype for reductionist science. So the archetype that we have tended to ignore is Daedalus, who is, I would say is the archetype for artificial life, because he's the synthesis um, integrating, building up, and I maintain this is the, and the reason the title of my book is what Daedalus told Darwin. I think that the misinterpretation of evolution comes from our cultural, analytic, reductionist science mindset where we have taken half the story and neglected the synthesis, half of the story. And that, that's really the, the fundamental argument of my book. Um, and the third character, Theseus, is the archetype for courage and innovation and the, the fact that the creative process is not just about analysis and synthesis. It's about, also about having the courage to reach beyond what's known and take a risk. So there's a running theme through your work, which is with regards to intelligent design versus evolutionary emergence, and you describe this as being pervasive. Can you give some discussion to that? You are saying intelligent design versus evolutionary emergence. That's the counterpoint that you... Through our correspondence and also through listening to your previous discussions, you're saying that these two counterpoints are are pervasive in, in current dialogue. You have some analysis with regards to this and also some slight disagreement with this. Can you explore that a little bit more? Slight is a very nice, understated way of putting it. (laughs) Um, Well, I think that there are three critical words in the English language that we need to recapture, reclaim. And those three words are collaboration, design, and recognition, as in pattern recognition. And and that's why I resonated so much with um, Dick Gordon's podcast where he talked about the importance of perception and recognition in artificial life. That is the key argument of uh, the book that I'll be talking about at NASA Ames October 7th, uh, If Microbes Begat Mind, on the origin and synthesis of life. Because I maintain that the fundamental, if you, if you ask what begat what, then that's, that's the, the, what I'm playing with in this title, If Microbes Begat Mind, because I'm also looking at is the precursor question. In other words, we tend to about what the basic question is. And oftentimes if you say, well, wait a minute, is that the basic question or is there a question 
And so when I go back beyond the current debates going on about the origin of life, I, I find that there is a yet more basic question, which has to do with pattern recognition. And pattern recognition is then fundamental to both the origin of life and to evolution. And of course, the other two words, collaboration and design, going back to your your counterpoint of intelligent design versus evolutionary emergence, I maintain that if we if we reclaim that word design, then design is the funda- the principles of design are the way that we explain how self organization occurs and life's own role as autonomously designing itself, and that that is the other half of the explanation of how creativity and evolution occurs. In other words, we tended to assume that all the creativity was in the environment selecting what worked and that the random mutation was the way that new um, variations came about. But even Darwin himself was not satisfied with that explanation. As Dick Gordon noted, it's, it's what you rest your definition of life as being primarily. How do you characterize life? How do you define it? Well, I've had great fun with that, and actually I have a whole chapter on, on the debates around defining life. And I love some of the things, some of the ideas that Bruce Damer has. We've actually been brainstorming about this for, I guess it goes back seven years, when we first wanted to start an Is It Alive competition, um, and I was at NASA Ames at that time. Um, and we felt that, uh, and perhaps competition is the wrong word, because, again, people tend to slip into the conventional paradigm where you're competing for a fixed goal or a fixed criterion of what it means to win. And what, what both Bruce and I were interested in was the idea of establishing a forum wherein people could debate about the nature of life. And so to go back to your question, um, in the chapter where I discuss that, I talk about three different material definitions of life, or three different, um, you know, object-oriented definitions of life. The first one being the material definition, which you can dismiss immediately. Um, Once uh, Frederick discovered urea, of course, there was no longer the, the idea that organics, solely were found in living things. Um, There's a functional definition of life, and again, there are ways that that is easily dismissed. And there's the the limits definition of life, Um, limits, temperature limits, size limits, chemical bond limits. But again, there are problems with all of those basic taxonomic definitions. And so when you get into the behavioral definition, there are also problems, and there are at least five of those. I end up, the fifth definition is the one that interests me, namely the autonomous definition of life. As we have the benefit of Ed on the line, as someone who deals obviously with life in some regard through Lily, what is your definition of life in this context, Ed? I go along with, you know, the gene uh, recreates itself and, and the life is based on, you know, a, a message and then it recreates itself through the cells and on and just replicates. And then the other parts, they're there, but uh, I mostly focus on that area, so it's the only part I'm kind of focused on. But the interesting thing with that is there is there is some strange dialectic between it's not just the winners but also the losers that constitute life. 
And if you look purely at the genetics, you miss the, the kind of counterpoint between, you know, winning and losing in some regard, and sometimes the losers go on to win in a few generations and all these kind of things. Bruce, I hear you chapping at the bit. What is your definition of life in this context? You know, I was just rereading Steen Rasmussen's six or seven points defining what define a living system, and that's in Artificial Life 2 in the last, in the summary, in the wrap-up. And I'm realizing, you know, we, we had a conversation with Zan earlier today that if, if there's any value to doing um, some kind of an evo grid, one of the huge results of that would be to come up with working definitions for living systems and really characterizing living systems. When I went to see Richard Dawkins seven years ago, um, this is what got his imagination the most. In, and at that time, I was talking about a prize competition because Zan and I were about to talk about that a lot. Uh, but it really comes down to if you have a cooperative framework where people are are building simulations that, that cooperate and send objects back and forth, you're also that's a definitional framework, and that that could be a huge and valuable output for biology and philosophy of of such an exercise. So obviously Professor Dawkins wouldn't want to talk about intelligent design in the contemporary context with regards to that, but Zan, in your idea of, of kind of recapturing the, the term design, how do you see that fitting together? Well, could I just go back to Ed's comment and, and add a little something to that? Because I think um, this question of whether the definition of life lies in the genes, in other words, the genetic information, or in the expression of those genes. And, of course, there is the little literal genetic expression, but there's also the behavioral expression of how life lives. And so that's where I see the really interesting opportunity to look at how we might extend our definition of evolution. And it's fortunate. Um, I've been working on this argument for a very long time as a speculative argument, and just quite recently, um, two biologists, um, Mark Kirshner, who is the founder and chair of the Department of Systems Biology at Harvard, and John Gearhart, who is uh, in the Department of Molecular Biology at UC Berkeley, came out with their theory of facilitated variation, which is, gives wonderful support to the argument that variation is not simply random and that, the, that life is playing. And it, it's quite a logical argument in the sense that uh, would, would evolution actually be so, so dumb as to develop a system where a random mutation was either lethal or produced a, a, a highly improvement in fitness? I mean, wouldn't it be more likely that um, evolution would have a lot of tolerance, a lot of play, uh, and they have this concept called weak linkage, really a design concept. So I'm coming back to your question, that design is fundamentally inbuilt into the processes of, uh, of how life adapts to the environment and also molds its environment. So it's this co-evolutionary type of concept, which I think that a life is uniquely positioned to explore. And this, in some regard, is the, the idea of intelligent design really being design and intelligence together, that there is a, 
an evo-devo component where the intelligent part is part of the evolutionary emergence as well. Am I right in my, my kind of extended listening to your work? I'm not sure I understood what you just said there. Well, there's, there's a discussion with regards to how mixing intelligence and life, and artificial intelligence and artificial life, these are the things that need to come together. There needs to be almost a concatenation where AI and A-life combine and you end up with A-life ecosystems which are fundamentally intelligent and whether you use genetic modeling methods or whether you use epigenetic modeling methods or whether you use new uh, life cycle modeling methods, is this where this design that you're talking about with regards to evolutionary processes come from or is there something even more implicit that I'm missing here? Well, well Tom, that's brilliantly stated. I wish I'd said it myself. So I have that's summarized what you're saying, basically. That's beautiful, yes. And this, this idea of the concatenation of AI and A-life, I think that is the huge opportunity because, you see, AI got very much caught up in the, the old paradigm, the goal-oriented, and I can remember Marvin Minsky talking about reducing the difference between the present state and the goal state. And even bio-inspired, I mean, it's changing now, but for a long time, genetic algorithms were, you know, they were mutating, but they were mutating toward improving the algorithm toward the goal. And so it wasn't really a pure evolutionary model. So as we have Travis on the line, in terms of your discussion with regards to the Pinocchio function, has that moved on in some regard? And is this really what Zan is talking about in terms of the mixing of intelligence and life in this kind of high, hybrid A life? Absolutely. As far as in terms of her context of, you know, what is life and these different verticals which you can apply to that definition um, and which one is, is the right answer, I think the answer is yes, right? Life is all of those things. And the eventuality of uh, harnessing that is what I'm, you know, very focused on. It's interesting because uh, Zan's work is very focused on uh, kind of describing the, the the process and approaching it from more of a pragmatic or excuse me, approaching it from more of a systemic process um, and and decoupling the process from the um, the organism or the actuality. Um, whereas my work is very focused on kind of the pragmatic approach of trying trying out the different ways in which these things can happen. Um, in a in a kind of neutral domain, right? A, a domain that's freed from uh, the rules of biology, for instance. Um, so uh, the, the two approaches and the two the two philosophies are are completely coherent with each other and complementary. Uh, so it's interesting, you know, to hear hear construct these these processes more and and uh, talk about the 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 eventuality of the the. Uh, artificial intelligence mixing with the, the artificial life is the is the ultimate future, and the reason for that is because artificial intelligence really relies on a, a top-down approach, and that's you know kind of what Zan was talking about the difference between the the current state and the goal is that top-down approach to solving a problem, where uh, artificial life uses more of a bottom-up approach, where you kind of build a framework for building more frameworks, right? And this continues to beget more frameworks and beget more frameworks of, of increasing abilities, um, which is more of a bottom-up approach that can continue to go. It doesn't ever hit the floor like a top-down approach does, right? 
So Didylus as the obsessive designer of the maze to hold the Minotaur is fundamentally a bottom-up metaphor, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Well, um, uh, well what I find really intriguing, of course, about Daedalus is that each, each solution that Daedalus creates becomes his next problem. So the, his first major accomplishment was the great biotechnology disaster of helping Queen Pasiphae build a, an artificial cow so that she could seduce the, the white bull of Poseidon, which led to the birth of the minotaur, half bull, half man. And when the minotaur grew into a menace, then Daedalus was called upon again to build a cage for the minotaur, which became the famous labyrinth, this architectonic uh, symbol of mind. But again, he was imprisoned in mind of his own when King Minos suspected that he had been an accomplice in, in the creation of the Minotaur. So then came his third invention, the, in, uh, the invention of the wings. So it was this constant play of opposites, um, you know, creating a problem, solving the problem, which creates the next problem, which solves. Um, you know, he would be a wonderful candidate for the next Sophocles, for the next great tragedy. Um, but I wanted to go back to uh, Travis made some really good points. Can I just insert something else uh, along those lines of, of artificial intelligence and a life? Because I think it's interesting. You know, there's starting to be this this movement and interest as a result of Werner Vinge's paper that he delivered at NASA in 1993, which grabbed hold of the imagination of Ray Kurzweil and a number of people. Uh, his paper called the technological singularity. The singularity generally being understood as the moment when computers exceed human intelligence. And so it's the ultimate, you know, grand artificial intelligence vision. But what is interesting, if you look more closely at Werner Vinge's paper, the, the part of it that has been forgotten, is that he said there are several different ways that this might come about. And so it's not just the, the big top-down idea that people typically remember, but he also suggested that large computer networks and their associated users may, quote-unquote, wake up as a superhumanly intelligent entity. Now, that's the Internet effectively harnessed and you know, perhaps harnessed with an artificial life framework, something like the Evo Grid. Um, a second point that he made was that computer-human interfaces may become so intimate that users may reasonably be considered superhumanly intelligent. And I think that's a second challenge for A-Life because the, the obvious thing that A-Life simulators can do is to build cute little systems with little critters running around, and nobody's really going to care too much about that. The challenge where A-Life can make a huge contribution is if, if A-Life uh, designers can build systems that humans can interact with so that humans can enter those systems, and that's where, and you can see how Bruce's various interests fit together because he's been interested in, in virtual worlds in which humans participate, right? And so that's where A-Life meets virtual worlds, and you start to explore the, the intersection of the human player with the, the artificial system. And, of course, that's, that's the great challenge NASA faces in designing missions into space. It's going to let these things go and, and have no, uh, you know, no further contact with them. The, the scientists and the engineers are in contact, and they are giving commands but at the same time, the, the robots have to be able to act on their own for periods of time. 
So you need that combination. The problem with the singularity, as I wrote about in, in Dick Gordon's book, is not that it is it could happen in the future, but we don't have the concept of intelligence, particularly vastly intelligent systems or superhuman intelligence in our social discussion. We have this very grand view with regards to our own intelligence and certainly in the Dick Gordon book chapter, what you've described with regards to Didylus's maze may actually describe a system which is more intelligent than Didylus himself through a wide variety of factors. But I wanted to I wanted to bring in your ideas of ecological sustainability and green tech because I mean this may be the, the Didylus paradox with regards to how we interact with our environment specifically in ecological matters. Can you talk a little bit about the sustainability problems and how artificial life can solve that? Well, my particular interest and where I came from to this question, as I said, it started with interest in the creative process and looking at what makes individuals creative and what, what makes us break through to a, to a new level of insight. And the fact that most of the books that I have read about creativity were singularly uncreative and, and uh, didn't reveal much to me. And so I ended up turning to evolution and becoming very interested in what the biologists were doing. And then also thinking that if you looked at a group mind working on a problem, you could see the process of concept formation and the breakthrough to a new level of insight that you could not observe in an individual mind that is destroyed in the process of observation effectively. And with the Internet and with the idea of collaboratories, collaboratory spaces, you can document those interactions so that you can actually look. If you were able to develop an effective collaboratory environment that would to, um, you know, of evolution and adaptation in response to the needs of users, then presumably that could be applied to various types of cross-disciplinary regional decision support challenges. I mean, one of them that I've spent some time talking with USGS about is Lake Tahoe, the region of Lake Tahoe, where they would like to pilot a system that would bring together the scientists working on various sorts of scientific problems from erosion to lake clarity to the effects of development and population um, so that these people could share information and look at how different things impact each other. And so if you could get regional systems working and, you know, plug them into some sort of Evo grid where they were able to share information and models with each other, you would have the beginning, and that's not an easy problem, obviously, but you would again be working bottom-up the beginning of something that might become an Internet-based system for tackling our global sustainability challenge. So the financial component to this is what always interests me, and certainly this is the feedback that I gave to Justin Lyme with regards to his various solution models with artificial life. I mean, the, the problem with the ecological systems in this regard is that a clean river has no financial value. You can get fish from it, you can get clean water from it, but that has no value. As soon as it's polluted and you start bringing in the uh, the fish and the water, then that has a cost associated with it. But I can't see how an artificial life system can add financial worth to something that would ultimately motivate ecological change. Can you describe how that may occur? Well, you've asked me a very big, very hard question. I would love to throw it open to the rest of the group, but let me just take a take a stab at one just very simple idea associated with this. 
And that goes to the, the great fad for social networks right now. And I think it's pretty much peaked. Maybe I might be wrong about this, but, you know, I think Facebook's kind of hit the top and they're, they're starting to be a, um, an aggregation of social networks and a realization that um, the social networks as currently conceived, this kind of uh, popularity venues where people can share photos and, you know, supposedly increase their reputation and, you know, make themselves better known, that type of thing, um, is pretty limited. If they were to go to the next step and you were to have some sort of synthesis um, across the idea of social networks and, of course, the great contribution that the Wikipedia makes and a more focused problem-solving linkage, in other words, where you had specific problems built social networks around them and, and had a kind of Wikipedia opportunity to share and, and the, the, the motivation that people currently have to join social networks to connect with other people. I think that might be a way to begin. That doesn't solve the big problems that we have to solve, but I think it might be a way to motivate interest and to, to at least start the process. Bruce, you've obviously had a long time to think about ecological issues and the way in which artificial life could impact these uh, these issues. What's your particular insight into this? Oh, I think that there's something deeply philosophical about this. Because if if in the 21st century we produce simulators that are powerful enough with million core processors, uh, simulators powerful enough that they can simulate a complete chemical medium. And within that medium, we just simply run time fast, and we get uh, organisms that, that, say, by the mid-century, we spin into atoms and pop them out the end of a pipette into a chemical solution, and they swim away. It's a profound, more than anything about cleaning the air or providing food or whatever, if that was done, it would teach us so much about our place in the universe. For example, it would show that the universe has the innate property to generate life. We may find out that it's really hard to, even in a, in a ramped-up simulation, to create something, an environment that allows something to emerge. And we might actually come to an appreciation, just as with the Apollo 8 shot of the Earth from the moon when in, in that December of 1968, when that thing swims out into solution, if that ever happened, we'd find out to our amazement how amazing life is because we'd see something emerge from, from scratch, but that we would also realize how precious it is and that if it actually is, it just emerged without a hand guiding it. We're an amazing uh, planet, an amazing uh, race on that planet. We have a responsibility uh, to keeping it safe and, and allowing it to continue. Certainly. I mean, I think for like-minded folk, that is the collected vision. But if I had a question for Professor Dawkins, it would be, how do you convince the other people that science is good and whole and capable of doing that? Because certainly part of this intelligent design debate, if there is such a thing, relates really to the fundamental trust of science and scientists. And ultimately, that is a, a, a problem which no doubt will be discussed in future biosolized at great length. Travis, do you have a, a question for Zan, or do you have a, an idea you'd like to put out? 
a couple, if I may, real quick. First of all, Zan mentioned, Zan had said that social networks had peaked. I think that, you know, as far as growth is concerned and acceleration of growth, uh, definitely social networks have peaked. As far as their utility and their ability to uh, change our world, I think that we, they are in their infancy um, of their ability to to really affect, you know, change. And uh, it's interesting that she brings them up because they are, in fact, a great example of a system that is, in, is undergoing an evolutionary process right before our eyes. Survival of the fittest, you know, the, the change in mutations um, that are that come through the in the form of all the different applications and the things that survive and the things that don't. Um, it's one of those tools that absolutely helps us to, uh, helps us to uh, also undergo one of our own evolutionary process of becoming a better at being a, a society and a, and a, and a, a ground-faring race that is rapidly growing and expanding um, you know, our, our growth and our, our needs, our pressures on this planet. Um, and through organization and through um, education and utility and through the utilities of social network which networks which can enable that um, and through the um, further modeling and understanding and using of uh, the processes that we do have to understand the, the future problems that we are facing I think that you know the future is bright so long as we do care as long as we do apply these things to cleaning up the environment and to taking care of you know uh, taking care that in, in 50 years we're still going to have an environment that we can live above ground in. I did want to ask more about Zan's book. Um, is it published already? No. Hopefully it's it's almost there. Okay. But, uh, not till next year. I, I am absolutely dying to read it because the the points that were made uh, just in the the reviews and in the summaries were are absolutely fascinating about the the dissection of the multiple layers of the. the the processes that are involved that bring about life and um, it absolutely cuts to the very heart of kind of the things that I have been ranting and raving about regarding uh, emergence and the, the different processes coming together to make larger processes and, and frameworks getting frameworks and things of like that so anxiously awaiting that and please keep us updated looking forward to talking more about that Great, and I'm fascinated by what you had to say earlier about fitness functions, and that all fits in. That's another conversation. And by the way, I totally agree with uh, Travis' points about social networks. Yes, I said to Zan that this is really an introduction for her to Bios Alive, and she's welcome to come on in the future, propose topics, and uh, continue the discussion. Ed, with four minutes remaining, do you have any thoughts or any questions for Zan? So my thoughts, uh, just real quick, um, I'm going to go back to that uh, environment, the environment and how that is affected. So the thing we want to do, or the thing I'm trying to understand is, in my simulation, is I'm going to call it the pressure. So that pressure that constantly changes, that constantly mutates our DNA, that constantly is affecting our environment, I'm trying to capture that in the simulate that I'm trying to work out and see if I can capture it, I think that, that will really help understand, I can map that to just about anything if we can understand that pressure and the, and the physics under that pressure that, that constantly changes. Because as you said before, you know, if it, we always change, whether we change good or we change bad, we always do change, but somehow evolution has figured out how to make us survive, uh, per se. Some may die and some live stronger. 
you've given a wonderful introduction down to your work and also the potential to the future. I mean, what interested me through your discussion at Greytham was really your thinking in terms of the future. So what we may have to do is have you on purely to talk about the future now you've defined your, your work to date so wonderfully. Fantastic. Well, and I think that your leadership of these sessions is just amazing, really an illustration of what I'm talking about when when I say that that my interest is in the group mind because you're really in the in the podcast creating that kind of dynamic and it's fun to watch how how ideas form up and you know how the process proceeds so thank you just before we we came on the uh, on the line I had a, a chat with Zan and she said that it's She's sorry that she's coming at the end of this process, and I made the point to her that I think she's really just entering at the start of a much longer process. So, Ed, I'd like to thank you in particular for your first time calling into Bio to Live, and uh, I, I welcome your feedback in the future. Thanks also to Travis, a returning participant. You're going to you're going to be effectively a co-host into the future, aren't you, Travis? Yes, I am. I'm really looking forward to that, Bruce. You're going to be away for a few weeks. Yes, heading to Los Angeles in Canada, and I'll be back in the middle of September. Wonderful. Well, I look forward to your update from, uh, from your travels. The topic next week will be Artificial Life Isn't Just Genetic Algorithms, which touches on some of what we've discussed this evening, but we'll explore it in a number of different directions. Thank you all very much for participating. Thanks for tuning in. you'll find, like Dr. Dave said, it's all in your mind.